All right, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, Before we dive into this uh, rich portion of God's Word, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask for His help. Let's pray. Father, thank You again that we can uh, open up Your Word. And we pray that You would, like a laser with precision, uh, that You would take this Word and with laser focus open up our, our own hearts and lives, that we would see what areas that we need growth in and that you would come with the power of your spirit and with the comfort of the gospel and that you would transform us from the inside out. So we, we ask you for mercy, Lord, knowing that this is just an exercise in futility if you don't help us, Lord. So come and be merciful. We pray that you would open up hearts. We pray that there's some who walked in here this morning lost just don't know you at all, that they would be gripped by the power of the gospel. And for others who come in cold-hearted and just stagnating and just lethargic, Lord, that you would stir them up and wake them this morning. And if there's those who are hungry, Lord, encourage them, Lord. Feed them. And we pray that you would, and if there's anyone who's trapped in cycles of sin, that you would cause them by your grace to break that chain and that cycle this morning. And that they would find themselves in a new place. We pray and ask that you would do what only you can do through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, you've never been here, perhaps a friend brought you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, We are going through the book of Ephesians. We love to go through whole books of the Bible. We believe that the healthiest diet for the church is to walk through Scripture, let God set the agenda for the learning of the church. And so we are walking right through the book of Ephesians. And this morning we come to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, and uh, to the subject of sexual immorality. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14, and... Now, of course, sexual immorality is a very relevant topic uh, in our culture, obviously. Um, not, I mean, from everything in politics to just the, the, the way that sexual immorality is just sort of represented in popular media or the ways that we are gripped by it ourselves or people that are affected by that. Um, our culture is intoxicated with sex. Not only that, but it's deeply confused about it. I think we need to uh, obviously admit that the words sexual, in fact, and immorality are not two words that our culture likes to put together. Sexual is fine. Immorality maybe could be fine if defined in the right way, but not don't put the words sexual and immorality together. Our culture would not be in favor of such a thing in the world's eyes. If it's sexual, it's basically acceptable. Basically. Except for extreme cases. In fact, I was reading this week a New York Times linked article entitled, I'm a pedophile, but not a monster. In which a man by the name of Todd Nickerson argues for the normalization of what he calls virtuous pedophilia. Virtuous pedophiles. Apparently, this is yet yet another special interest group in America of adults who are seeking the normalization, the decriminalization, the legalization of adult affection. We'll just leave that word there for children. In a way that's legal and not criminal. 
It's nauseating. It's nauseating how far we have fallen as a culture. And it shows how sexually dysfunctional we have become as a society. But what about more sort of -of run-of-the-mill kind of forms, uh, bland, more vanilla-type forms of sexual immorality? You know, the stuff that we see every day. It's obviously, as Christians, just as sinful. But we see it every day. We get numb to it. Um, What what, what about the, the everyday forms? And it's very easy to read a passage like the one in front of us in the Bible and conclude, you know, the Bible just needs to loosen up. I mean, it's such an antiquated document and it's so prudish and restrictive. And, and just look how outdated and irrelevant this stuff is. Sexual immorality, really? In fact, our culture would love for us to think that God is essentially a cosmic killjoy. A type of God who really doesn't want you to have any fun or enjoy sex or enjoy pleasure. And, and if we're not careful, we'll end up buying the lie that God is unreasonably restrictive. Much like Puritanism, Christianity is often unfairly painted in those terms. H.L. Mencken uh, once said that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Which was a clever expression, but what's interesting is that our culture would have us adapt the same definition for Christianity. Our culture would want to say and want us to believe that Christianity is really just the haunting fear that someone else somewhere is happy. Which, of course, is a gross misrepresentation of Christianity. As we, of all people, know what it really means to experience real joy and true happiness. But, of course, you can see why people get there. When you read passages like this, you'll see that Paul gives a list of sins to avoid. He mentions six of them specifically in three and four. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. And when we see lists like this, it's easy to develop a wrong attitude. It's easy to say, see, here we go again. The Bible is just giving people a list of do's and don'ts. And and by saying that, what we end up doing is turning the Bible into an ethical handbook that simply tells us how to live. And if we do that, then we are reading scripture and missing the whole point of the gospel. In fact, it's dangerous because it reduces Christianity to behavior modification. Like all you need to do is kind of clean up your act a little bit. It, 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 and, and when we do that, it reduces our need for Jesus whatsoever. Why do we need Jesus? I mean, if we can just sort of clean up our own act, there's no need for Jesus. Just, but here's the issue is that just being moral isn't the issue. Just having morally upright kids is not what the Bible is about. The idea isn't to somehow just be good people and have a good family and nice kids. That's not the goal of Christianity, and it never has been. Success in morality without the gospel is suicide, spiritually. Success in morality without the gospel is spiritual suicide because it tells you that you can do this on your own and that Jesus is not needed. So it's not the goal of Christianity to keep you from having fun as our culture would want us to think or enjoying life. That should be obvious to us in how this passage begins. I mean, look at back at verse 1. Paul says, as dearly loved children the imitators of God. The whole context of this passage is about God's love for us as dearly loved children. 
The whole context is God's love, love that, according to verse 2, gave himself for us, love that was sacrificial in its nature toward us. So the, the whole thing about avoiding sexual immorality and all that is couched in a loving God who gave himself for us. So God's not a killjoy. God is not unreasonably restrictive. He's not selfish and prudish. And if he restricts us from something, he does so because he loves us. It's for our protection and our prosperity. The Bible is not anti-sex. It is pro-sex. It is even pro-enjoyment of sex in the context of marriage. The scriptures are fundamentally positive about sexuality. And yet, the Bible warns us about the dangers of it, doesn't it? So it's crucial when approaching a text like this, that we see not only what we're called to do, called to avoid, but how and why these things are forbidden. Because if we don't see how, then we won't see the gospel. And without the gospel, these prohibitions here become the letter that kills rather than the spirit that gives life. Second Corinthians 3. Now notice that all these commands flow out of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's not saying, do these things and you will be accepted by God. No, the call to holiness is a response to the grace of God. So these are not if-then statements. Like, if you live a sexually pure and moral life, then you will earn God's favor. No. These are since, therefore statements. Since you are children of God, therefore be holy. And it's important that we understand that distinction. Otherwise, we'll flip Christianity on its head and try to gain God's acceptance through our moral effort. So verse 1, you are loved by God, therefore imitate him. That's the idea. He's naming our identity. He's telling us who we are. He's not saying you will become children if you imitate God. Big difference. He said that it's the difference between living life for salvation And living life from salvation. It's the difference between living life for forgiveness and living life from forgiveness. Huge difference. Now with that said, let's pick up where we left off last week. And what I want to do is just walk through this text kind of line by line and apply it as we go. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is the only place in the Bible where we're told to imitate God. Normally, it's like Paul says, like, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me. But this is the only time that we're told to imitate God. Now, I was just thinking about this. If I were to ask you to come up here and imitate me, all right, and we're to grab a couple of volunteers and I'll grab a couple of you off the row. And I said, John, why don't you come up here and imitate me now? Now do this. okay? and then shout like this and then walk over here and and do this and get down on your knees and do As adults, you would be like, this is kind of like, man, I don't feel comfortable doing that in front of these people. You know, you'd feel awkward about such a thing. But if I were to ask some kids, hey, kids, who wants to come up here and imitate, mimic Pastor Jonathan? Kids would run out of their seat because they want to come up and they want to do that. They kids like to mimic. They they wouldn't be awkward about it. They would run up and do it. They it wouldn't and it wouldn't matter really what you asked them to do. They would be quite happy to give it a go and try it. And I was thinking, as Paul says here, as children imitate God. There's a sense in which we are to be like children. And how do children mimic? Children mimic quickly and enthusiastically and immediately and with excitement and without embarrassment. 
And how do we as adults mimic? Half-heartedly, embarrassingly, looking at others to make sure that we're approved by them and not looking silly. And so Paul tells us, imitate God as children. What kind of children? Not just children, but dearly loved children. How do dearly loved children imitate? I would suggest with security, with confidence, with hope. So you see that what, what he's getting at here, the, the, the theme really of this passage, then from verses 3 through 14, is in your imitation of God, the, the theme is to, to be free from sexual immorality and walk in the light. So the pressing question for us this morning is how do you get free from sexual immorality and learn how to walk in the light? And so my prayer for you this week is that God would through this preaching of this word, pastor your heart and your soul this morning on this issue, this great important issue of sexual immorality. Some of you would be able to break free and begin to walk in the light. In a room this size, you can be sure that sexual sin is an issue for many, many people. I mean, if you're not significantly struggling with this issue yourself, then chances are you you know someone else who is and who it's destroying their life. So this is immensely relevant for all. And the burden, my burden, and the burden I think of this text is that if you are trapped by this sin, how do you get free? And isn't that the question that we face in general? How do we change? Like if we're trapped in certain cycles of sin, it doesn't have to be sexual sin, it can be anything else. How do we change? Can we change? Is there anything besides just, I'm just going to exert more willpower? I'm just going to try harder. Is there something else that we can sort of go to? Is there a method? Is there a way? Is there an approach? Is there something that can get me out of this cycle? How can I change? And I would say that in change, there's always two things that, when, when, when something really changes, two things are at play. One is a process of just, you know, changing your behavior, changing your diet, changing your lifestyle, changing your disciplines. That's the process. And then there's that crisis moment where it's like you come to terms with the fact that change is really needed. And that has to happen first. The crisis is like the family that steps in for a drug addicted teenager with an intervention. The crisis is like the hospitalization of an alcoholic who's experiencing acute liver problems. That's the crisis. The crisis is like the smoker who can't breathe and he goes in to receive breathing treatments and they say, we need to do a CT scan and they see a tumor and they say, you're lucky this time it's benign, but next time it might be cancer. That's the crisis moment. The process is the day-to-day struggle. It's the, your fight against sin and temptation. It's the discipline of trying to pray and read the Bible and grow as a Christian. But it's here in the process that people get lazy. Quit reading. I quit studying the Bible. I quit praying. And we get lazy and we, and we start to, we start to slump spiritually. And that's why in successful change, both a crisis and a process are needed. And I would say that if we default somewhere, we tend to, we tend to emphasize the process, don't we? Right? Just we need to learn more. We need to understand more. We need to learn how to make better choices and develop more discipline in our life. We need to get some accountability and then we'll begin to defeat sin. But then other people, they say, you know, when that's not working, what's needed is a crisis. 
you know, come down to the front and kneel down and get on your face and plead before God and cry and shed some tears at the altar. And if you're at camp, throw a stick in the fire. And those are moments are important as well. Crisis moments. Crisis moments. Have a turning point. That's what's needed. And the fact of the matter is we need both. Process and crisis. Getting free from sexual sin is going to take a crisis and a process. And today I hope you feel, I hope you will feel if you're not already, how the crisis moment of how did I get here? I don't want to be here. I don't want to live my life like this anymore. And then also the process of what am I going to do on a daily basis to defeat this sin in my life? Now, it would be difficult to overestimate how badly this is needed in our culture. Sexual sin is ravaging our society. I was given some numbers this week. 68% of men and 18% of women are now viewing pornography once a week. One in five Google searches for, is for sexually explicit material. Women in the past five years, women in the past five years have had extramarital affairs and that number is up 40% in five years. 56% of men, 35% of women have had five or more partners in their life. 25% have had 20 or more. That's a quarter of our society. The average age for a first encounter is 15. Mobile phone sexting, 40% of all teenagers. That means if you have two kids, roughly one of them's doing that on their phone. That number, by the way, is 25% for adults. That's pathetic. 71% of teens are consistently hiding online and phone behavior from their parents. TV is bolder and more graphic than ever before, constantly pushing the edge, running new shows that are racy in order to get a following. And that's just skimming the surface of the problem. And if we're not careful, what happens is we, be, we sort of get accustomed to this and we have a depreciated capacity of being outraged by the things that absolutely outrage God. Numb to it. Just turn on the TV, flip on the movie. You can sit down and go through an entire scene on the movie and just watch it, watch it, watch it. Just watch it. And it doesn't even affect your conscience anymore. But God, but God, God is grieved by such things. And every survey would indicate that this is, if this is true in culture, it's rampant in the church. We need a crisis. We need a God-ordained Holy Spirit revival on this subject. It's devastating families in the church. You know, families, that it's devastating. It's destroying marriages. And so let's just start with this conviction this morning that I, I must admit that sexual sin is breaking God's law. Sexual sin is breaking God's command. Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul says, let it not even be named among you. I was thinking about how high that standard is. That's like if we went down through this row, that means every row, every person, every seat in this room, that we could not even pull out one example of one person where it could be named that there is sexual immorality and that it was known to other people. Is that a standard? I mean, how well are we doing at that? So I, I think we need some growth in this area. 
Sexual immorality. Let's just look at these words. The word sexual immorality is the word pornea, which of course is where we get the word pornography. It's a broad term though, and it covers all forms of sexual sin. Impurity. Impurity is a broad, another broad term that refers to any type of filth whatsoever. It literally means uncleanness. Jesus used this word to describe decaying bodies in the grave. It's used ten times in the New Testament to refer to sexual sin. Then covetousness. It's like, what's that word doing hanging out here? Well, coveting, I mean, as you know, is not just about money. And, and, it's, and it's anything that you can't righteously have. It's a lust for something that's not yours. And in this context, it's probably referring to a craving for something that's not yours sexually. At least that. Now, in addition to impurity in our conduct, he brings up impurity in our speech. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Filthiness is a term used to describe just general obscenity. And any talk that is sexually perverse or degrading of another person, which is sin. Foolish talk, that is talk that is futile. It detracts from issues of faith and edifying discussion. It's the gutter mouth guy at work who's got a two-word vocabulary. Crude joking. Crude joking is turning any comment, no matter how innocent, into something sexual or obscene or, sug- or suggestive. It's the talk show host who's never at a loss for a sexual turn of phrase or innuendo. And it's the guy who always starts his jokes with, that's what she said. These are things that Paul says are out of place. They're not fitting for a follower of Christ. Verse 4, but instead, all in favor of but instead? He says, but instead, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul says, if you're going to open your mouth... With filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, if you're going to open your mouth, then start here. Start with thanksgiving. Start by thanking God. Thank God that you have another day on earth, that you're breathing, that you're alive, that you're healthy, that you have a roof over your head, that you have a nice warm bed to sleep in, that you have food to eat and a family that loves you and a church to attend and Jesus and the gospel. Begin by thanking God. So many things to be thankful for. So just take a moment while you're just sitting there right now. Thank God for something. Thank Him for something right now. Take a moment and thank God for all that He has done in your life. Go ahead, just just thank Him now. Let's be people of thanks. Why? Why does the the question that I was facing this week is why does Paul tell us? This is the, the fun things you get to wrestle with in the text. Why does Paul tell us to replace sexual sin with gratitude? Anybody else think that's kind of odd? So it's kind of the idea put off. And put on, put off sexual immorality and all this stuff and impurity and put on thanksgiving. Well, what relationship does thanksgiving have with sexual immorality? That's the question. Doesn't that seem odd? Well, here's what I want to suggest as an answer to that. Sexual immorality and impurity are driven by covetousness, verse 3. Okay, so and if covetousness is rooted in discontentment and a desire for something that's not yours then it should be clear that thanksgiving is the opposite of sexual immorality. Because thankful people aren't looking for something else. They're content with what they have. Thanksgiving is when you feel that you believe God is enough for me. That God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you believe that He gives you everything that you need and God withholds no good thing to those who believe in Him, whether single or married. 
Thanksgiving is what you feel when you trust him, that the disappointments of life are not evidences of his stinginess, but they're rather the wisdom of a loving father who values your holiness above the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Thanksgiving then is the alternative to sexual immorality because a life of Thanksgiving is not driven by lustful cravings for something else. Thanksgiving says with Asaph, God is my portion. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And Thanksgiving says, I will not, therefore, dishonor God in the worth of his name for a few moments of sexual pleasure. But sexual immorality, Paul says, is idolatry. And therefore, if it's idolatry, it's false worship and it's very serious. So make note of this, that the price for unrepented sexual immorality is hell. Unrepented sexual immorality. Think about this. This is serious. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What's he saying here? Is, Is Paul saying that if you've ever committed any of those sins that you're not going to heaven? How many people hope he's not saying that? I do. And he's not. He's not saying that. That's not what he's saying. Look again at this verse. Everyone who is sexually immoral, the, the tense of the verb itself implies an ongoing pattern of life. It's everyone who is impure as their pattern of life, as an idolater who's worshiping something other than God. It's, it's worshiping something other than him. And therefore, that person is not going to heaven. This is a person who's living a lifestyle of this in an unrepentant way. We're, so, so we're not talking, hear me clearly, we're not talking about the person, even the person in here this morning, who's deeply struggling with sexual sin. Okay? Because you're trying to fight it. You're struggling. You're praying. You hate it. You're trying to resist it. You're failing. You're, you're struggling with it. It's very, very difficult for you, but at least you hate it and you are trying to turn from it. Okay? We're not talking about you. If that's you, you're fighting it. You're showing evidences of real work and grace in your life. We're talking about that person who's unwilling to fight. Who's not desirous of walking in purity in any way. Who doesn't give a rip about it. Who's sold out to it. Who's given their life over to it. That person, unless they repent, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he says in verse 6, Because, I mean, because people come along and say, oh, come on now. That's just so prudish. There's no way God's saying that. So he says, verse 6, doesn't he? Look at it. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. In other words, Paul's anticipating people are going to come along with empty words and say, come on, man. You don't really think God is going to sort of keep people out of heaven because they struggled with a little sexual sin, do you? Which, of course, is twisting the whole thing of what he's saying. He's saying, that's empty words. Don't listen to such people. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon sons of discipline. Empty words are rationalizations. Is the person who says, you're making such a big deal out of this. Why don't you lighten up a bit? Empty words. Listen here. There are so many pastors today who are bent on saying things to people in the church to fill seats, to fill churches, smiling and warmly saying whatever people want to hear to grow their churches. And it's dangerous, extremely dangerous. 
You watch it on TV. You visit places like that. And notice that he says, let no one deceive you, deceive you with empty words and empty rationale. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming. I couldn't help but think about this, this whole idea of of just smooth talking and making everybody feel so good. And, and, you know, in that whole, it's just so sweet and you just feel so drawn in and sucked away. And I couldn't help but think of Jude 4, which is an amazing prophecy for us in our day. Jude 4 says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, talking about leaders who've crept into the church, ungodly people who pervert, listen to this, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's an amazing prophecy for our day. Leaders who have crept into the church unnoticed and pervert the grace of God. Now, all in favor of the grace of God? I'm in favor of that. Amen. We are in favor of the grace of God. Big time. We are. But listen, it is possible to preach grace in the grace of God in such a way that people hear it and they become lazy in their fight against sin. And if that were not the case, then Paul would not have had to have said in Romans, what shall we do? Go on sinning that grace may abound. This was a this was an error in the early church. This was a tendency. This was a problem in the early church. And you can be sure if it was a problem then, it's a problem now. Please be aware of this tendency to pervert the grace of God, Jude 4, and turn it into sensuality. Turn it into a license for sin. Jude says they pervert the grace of God into what? Sensuality. People use the grace of God as a license to sin. They don't take the call to holiness seriously. Because grace has been preached and received in such a way that no longer is holiness really seen as a necessary thing. But the Bible says, unless you have holiness or walk in holiness, you will not see the Lord. So it perverts the grace of God. People can hardly listen stomach messages anymore. Preaching, challenging preaching that calls us to holiness of life. They say it's not important. And besides, God will forgive me. And God is a God of grace. And God is a God of love. And God loves me. And I've heard it taught a thousand times. Grace, 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 grace. And God's grace becomes an excuse for living any way they want to live. Now, I want to say this. I want to proclaim to you that God will forgive you. In emphatic terms, I want to proclaim that to you, that God will forgive you from your sin and hypocrisy and sexual immorality and sensuality. I do, I proclaim that God, and you can be free from that sin. And you can be free from the very thing that we're talking about this morning. And you can learn and begin to learn to live a life free of shame sexually. And I want to proclaim that grace of God to you. But hear me, God's grace must not be received in a way that you start to think that your sin doesn't matter. And if it's being preached or received that way, then God is dishonored and you are deceived. It does matter how you live. Holiness is part of a worthy walk with God. And grace, rightly understood, leads to growth in godliness, not sin. Now, let me ask you a question. Turn in your Bible just for a moment. Let's just do a little bit of work together. 
Turn your Bible to Titus chapter 2. All right? And I want to ask this question. What does grace do? Because we, we talk about grace. We preach about grace. We love grace. But yet, we're convinced that grace, when it's rightly taught, properly sort of exegeted, coming out of the scriptures, should lead to righteousness, right? Should lead to godliness, not to further sin. So if it's leading to sin, either we're receiving that wrongly, or it's being preached wrongly, or something's happening, it's being perverted. Titus 2. What does the grace of God do? Now, just read this together. This is, this is one of these texts that is... It should be sort of a guide for us, a grid, a category to understand. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does the grace of God do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright and godly life in the present age that's what grace does and any other preaching of grace that does not lead to holiness of life and a ruthless fight against sin is soul damning heresy this is what the grace of god does look at that renounce ungodliness renounce worldly passions live self-controlled lives upright godly that's what the grace of god does Look, it's possible to profess to be a Christian and not really be one. It's possible to make a profession and have no love for God. And that's why I just want to say to you, if you're here as a non-Christian this morning, welcome. We're, we're really glad you're here. And maybe a friend drug you here and, you know, you're not really excited about being here, but you're here. We're glad you're here. And I just want to say to you that I know that sometimes I'm sure you have Christian friends and you look at their life and you say, man, there's gross inconsistency. They profess to know Jesus, but they're grossly inconsistent. And you just want to walk away from Jesus and say, this whole thing's a sham. It's a joke. I watch Christians all the time. They're just like the rest of the of the world. They they look at pornography. They engage in that. They learn adulterous affairs. They live in lot. They're, they're at the bar getting drunk. There's all this stuff. And you look at that and you say, that's gross inconsistency. I don't want anything to do with that Jesus. And what I want to say to you this morning is that's the wrong conclusion. Because Paul is saying here, okay, that it's possible to make a profession of Christ and not really be one. I mean, just because somebody's living inconsistent doesn't mean that they're, well, they're just inconsistent, that they're saved. They, they may not be saved at all. So what I want to encourage you to do this morning is that you need Jesus for your own sins and inconsistency is turn to Him. And don't let the inconsistency of someone else or even their false profession keep you from Jesus. I was thinking about our youth. Uh, you guys, kids, uh, y'all are in high school or middle school. Kids, listen to me for a minute. You, you, guys are, you, guys, you guys are so concerned about your friends, right? I mean, that's that phase of life. You, you just, friends really matter. And you're in that phase. And I just want to ask you, just as an exercise, go home today, take a piece of paper out, draw the line right down the piece of paper. And on the left column, I'll do it this way for you. On the left column, right in there, all the names of your friends that you really think fit sort of verses 3 and 4. Right? Sexually immoral. Think about this. Impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Write their names in that column. Then write the names of your friends in the other column. Pursuing God, godly, righteous, holy, seek, seeking Him. And I want to ask you who you're spending your time with. And I want to plead with you. 
to cross off that one side. Okay, I'm not saying don't be their friend. I'm just saying, I'm saying, I want you to ask, where are you at? What column are you in? And by faith, if you're in that left column of sin, by faith, to get out of that column and get to Jesus. Leave that behind and follow him in that. And then as a church, I mean, just thinking of, I'm so, I'm encouraged as a pastor here because earlier this year, we had two members uh, approach us and say, can we stand up at a, bit, a church members meeting and just, we want to apologize. We want to ask forgiveness from the whole church for a couple of things. It wasn't any gross sin or any such thing. But they saw something in themselves that was not fitting for Christ and, and his church. And they wanted to seek forgiveness publicly. And that's glorious. What humility. What, what holiness. What a way to wage war against your sin. What a way to be what Paul is describing here. To walk in the light. And as pastors, we want more of that. How beautiful it is when you open your heart to others and you say, here it is, I need help. Help me. I can't walk this life on my own. And so I want to get in a gospel community. I want to get around other people that are going to help me walk with Jesus. And so who who signed up for a gospel community since last time? I just encourage you, leave here today. Go out, look at that board, grab one and say, honey, husband, wife, whatever. We're going to get in one of these groups and we're just going to quit playing around with it. We're going to do it. All right. But here's the thing. Let's not pretend. All right. Let's not pretend that we're living a life of purity if we're not. Don't pretend things are okay with you if you're not pursuing godliness and holiness and purity by his grace. Notice how clear this text is. Verse 3, verse 7, verse 11. Paul says three things very specifically. Let this stuff not even be named among you. Number two, do not be partakers in it. Do not participate in it. Have no fellowship with this. Paul's really clear. The, the idea here is zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. Don't pretend. Don't partake. No sampling. No playing around. Nothing. Just don't associate with it. Why? Verse 8. For at one time, here's the answer. I, again, this is one of these turns of phrases that you're like, how is that the answer? Why, why no participation? Here's his answer. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. Why should you not participate? Because you're no, long, you're no longer of the darkness. You're of the light now. That's why. Because you're not, a you're not a child living in darkness. You're now a son and daughter of God living in the light. You're a different person. You've been made in a new way. That's why the call of this passage, here it is, is to live consistently with who God made you to be. In other words, the idea here is be who you are. Since you're light, walk as children of the light. Do what you were made to do. Shine. Be who you are. That's what it means to live a life of integrity. And, and so he writes, you are light in the Lord. We were all darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Now, just how did that happen? How did you become light in the Lord? Well, in John 12, Jesus said, put your trust in the light and you will become sons of light. Second Corinthians four, God, who said, let there be light has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus. And Paul says, since this is true of us, we are to walk in the light. Since this is what we are, then this is how we are to now live. Walking in the light 
essentially means living a life of integrity. Be who you are. If you're a child of the light, then walk in the light. If you're salt of the earth, be salty. If you're a Christian, live like a Christian. Then Paul goes on to say this, that believers must not only avoid sin and walk in the light, but look what he says, verse 11, but, but now they have to take it a step further and they need to expose works of darkness. So that brings in the missional element. That your life exists as a light, not just to avoid sin and walk in the light, but to expose darkness. To live on mission with your life. Paul, verse 11, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now that word exposed could be translated rebuke or, or, or correct. The, the idea is that correcting or rebuking, walking in the light implies living a holy life in front of others and confronting darkness when we see it graciously, redemptively, carefully, slowly, kindly. But there's something about your life that is corrective to others in a dark place. And that's a tough assignment to be light in the world. When you shine the light into the darkness, people will have a negative reaction to that. People don't appreciate, here it is, people don't appreciate a bright light when they're trying to live in darkness. They hate it. How many of you parents have gone into your kid's room in the middle of winter and you can't get them out of bed? I mean, it's a cold winter day. They're under their blanket and you're like, get up, get up, get up. And they're just laying there like a stone. Get up, get up. And you turn on the music. Nothing works. You can't get them moving. But you know what works every time? Flick the light on. Ah! (laughs) Turn it off. Turn the light off. Because there's something about the light coming on in darkness. They become accustomed to the darkness. But here's the funny thing. That same light that you just turned on is the same light they used last, last night to do their homework under. But now they hate it. It was fine then, but they hate it now because they've grown accustomed to the darkness. And that's why Jesus says in John 3, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And that's why Christ came into the world so that we can approach God. The coming of Jesus is the light entering the world. Matthew said that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And when Christ began his ministry, he walked into the temple and what did he say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never live in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's amazing how much scripture talks about this theology of light. Those aren't just words. Christ came so that those who walk in darkness may may be able now to walk in the light of God's presence. But Exodus 24, the light, the emanating from God was too strong, was too great. Moses could not be around it. It was just too powerful. But now Christ has come and he, and, and he ascended to heaven. And, and the question becomes, so how does that light shine today? If Christ was on the earth and his light was shining then, how does it shine today? And the answer is right here in the text. Paul says, you are light. You, you people are light. You're the light now. Light is used to transform unbelievers into believers. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Here's what happens. Light reveals the essence of a thing. And when light shines on an unbeliever, God may choose to expose his or her darkness to them and make them light. 
Verse 14 is Paul's shorthand for conversion. How is a person saved? Verse 14. P.T. O'Brien says this, the exposure of people's sins through believers enables men and women to come to see their sinful nature. Some of them will abandon the darkness of sin and respond to the light so they end up becoming light themselves. See, when you're around unbelievers and your light is shining graciously and yet penetratingly, people see their sin sometimes and they're broken and they're brought to Christ. In other words, light has an intrinsic power to transform. And that's why you should be eager for your light to shine in a dark world. God will use your life to expose darkness and save people. Amazing. Because you are light now. Jesus isn't here physically. But you are and you're his light. And so verse 14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The sleeper here is the unbeliever. And by the light of Christ, a man is awakened and enabled to rise from the dead. To rise from spiritual darkness and come to the light. So, we've walked through the text. And I just want to ask us this question as we close. Where does that leave us? We've seen what walking in the light means. Essentially, it means turning, replacing illicit sexual pleasure with thanksgiving. We talked about that. How do you, why is thanksgiving a replacement? We've seen that living a life of integrity... That we are to be who we are. We've seen that it means living a life on mission. We are to expose the darkness around us with our light. But where does that leave us? And I think it should leave us with this. We need to come out of here with an established personal conviction. And, and what I want to press the sort of the whole weight of the sermon is on this. Here's the conviction. I want you to walk away with it. I will not tolerate sexual immorality and impurity in my own life. I will not tolerate that. I won't tolerate sexual immorality and impurity in my life. I will not tolerate it. Secondarily, I will not tolerate it in my family. I will take measures to protect my children and my wife and my marriage. But first, start by looking in the mirror. I will not tolerate sexual immorality and impurity in my own life. I just want to leave you with some closing applications because this is not news to you, but I am a man. And because I'm a man, therefore, I have certainly felt the weight of temptation in these regards. But I want to leave you with four things that Christ has helped me with and has graciously given to me as wisdom for life and godliness. Four things that have helped me. Number one, establish moral fences. What I mean by that is you go to the Grand Canyon, there's guardrails in certain areas. And the guardrails just sitting there saying, don't, don't go over the guardrail. Okay? If you go over the guardrail, you're dead. But here's what I want to say to you. Don't even get close to the guardrail. Right? So the guardrail isn't sort of to go up there and say, let's see how strong this thing is. Don't get close to it. Establish more of what are moral fences. Well, some examples in my life would be practically for me. It means I don't counsel women alone. Ever. Ever. I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're here and you're a sister in Christ and you need some help, you'll either see my wife or you'll see a group of pastors or you'll see a pastor and another lady or two. It's just the way it works. Number two, don't, I don't travel alone. I don't stay in hotels alone. I don't ride in a car with a woman that's not my wife unless it's my mom. <laughs> Which counts. 
Establish the moral fences. Number two, remove the opportunity to fail. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. There's not a channel on my TV. If you were a sex addict and you came to my house, there's not a channel on my TV that would trap that person. It's just not there. It's not available. A sex addict could not find a place to fail with my TV, my internet, my computers, my phone. I have filters on all of them. I mean, it was just yesterday. I was trying to look up how to fix. My mom's car, Buick, was like stuck in, excuse me, stuck in drive. I mean, a park, and she couldn't get it down. And I'm like on the internet trying to look, how do I get this thing fixed? And for some reason, my filter was blocking all these websites. And it's a hassle. I mean, it's a pain. Trust me. I got to get other people to do research. I need to get other people to do research on these statistics of sex this week. I just can't find it. I can't access it. It's a, trust me, it's a hassle. But here's the thing. I don't want to be able to fail in my weakest moment. So I just remove the opportunity to sin. Number three, develop and maintain accountability. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I'm, we meet weekly with our fellow pastors. We talk about some of these matters, not enough, but we talk about some of them. Uh, but additionally, and thankfully for this, I'm on the phone each month with two other men, and we talk about integrity in these matters. Relationships. Any of them inappropriate? Emotionally? Your eyes? Your computer use? All that stuff. The stuff's examined and talked about. Two men. Number four, and finally, count the cost of sin. If you're not going to be pure, if you're going to live in sin, I just want you to consider the harm that's going to do to your reputation. The way that's going to destroy your life your family, the people that love you, the devastation that will cause, the loved ones that will hurt, the loss of authority and power that you will experience in ministry. And this is not just for pastors. This is for anybody who wants to do ministry. No power, no life, no source. Because you, you're living in sin and there's no power source. The Spirit is not supplying you with grace and strength and power in your ministry because you are living in sin. Consider the cost of sin. So establish moral fences, remove the opportunity to fail, maintain and establish accountability and count the cost of sin, of moral impurity. It is very serious. And I'm persuaded that personal purity is a matter of the Christian will. And what I mean by that is it comes down to a daily fight. It comes down to a gospel-centered, gospel-centered, faith-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. I'm not leaving Jesus out of that. Gospel-centered Faith-fueled, spirit-empowered, but there better be some effort, folks. Effort, discipline, pursuit. It's a choice. It's a choice that you make to be pure. And so let's make that choice today by God's grace. And let's not use grace as an opportunity to keep on sinning. Let's use grace as an opportunity to fight sin and be men and women of purity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, Lord, we're corrected by it, how we have failed. But we are grateful that there's a forgiveness way greater than our failing. And we lunge ourselves into the arms of Jesus again. And we just say, God, you've got to help us because we are so weak. We are so weak. We need your help, Lord. But we believe that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, that we are going to hang on because Christ is hanging on to us. 
So reinvigorate us this morning. Fuel us afresh, God, to leave here and to fight the fight of faith with Scripture and in a gospel-centered way and with faith fueling it and with the Spirit empowering it so that we can advance and grow in godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing the chorus. You have loved. You have loved us like you love your son. We are heirs with Christ, bought by his blood. Oh, how great the love that we can couple of announcements and then I'm going to leave you with a good word. Um, there's a religious freedom rally I want to encourage you guys to go to on um, October the 20th. It's going to be at the courthouse 5 to 6 p.m. It's a very important event. It's in our city. Um, we obviously appreciate religious freedom. You're here because of it. So let's pray for that. Let's be a part of that. Um, that's going to be October the 20th at 5 to 6 p.m. There's a camp out for father sons right here. Um, on the soccer field down there on October the 16th. Breakfast is totally provided. Uh, go ahead and contact Brandon Boswell there for details, or you can call the church office. 
love for dads. You guys get your kids out there. It'll be a good time, father son thing. It's not just father sons, Jason. Oh, it's not. Okay, thank you. It's family. Camp. Family. All right, thank you. Family camp out. Even better. All right. So yeah. All right. <laughs> so daughters who love to throw sticks into the fire, go for it. All right. Uh, we're glad for that. And uh, let me leave you with. Just an encouragement. I don't know what your response is to that message, but I just encourage you, please. Don't. The worst thing you can do is say, "Man, I'm so guilty. Man, I'm really struggling. I'm, I am. I'm a sex addict." And say, "But I'm not going to tell anybody." Look, I, I promise you, you, you can't do that. Don't do that. We'll, we'll help you. All right. Nobody's going to get reamed. Okay. We're, we're going. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to get beside you. We want to lift your hands like they lifted Moses' hands. And we'll hold him as long as we have to until you get some help and victory in this area of your life. Don't go out of here. I promise. Come see me. I won't tell anybody. I, I will not share that with it, with anyone. I will keep that confidence and I will find a way for you to get counseling and help in prayer. And uh, and and if, and if there's just any other... Man, maybe you're lost. You're saying, I need to trust Jesus for the first time. All right? There'll be a pastor right here. I'll be up here. Others will be on the way out, okay? So just grab one of them. Or grab a Christian beside you. Just tell them you need help and you want to seek Jesus. So thank you all for coming. We love you. May God richly bless you this week. Seek him. Keep your face in the book and your knees on the ground. We'll see you guys soon. God bless you.